Thank you to our praise team. Thank you, Tim, and our instrumentalists. God bless all of you for being here today. Especially uh, thankful for those who are outside who still want to be amongst us. And I went out, I took my two assistant pastors out and went and greeted those outside. And then also, of course, to those who are listening over the internet now and those who will listen later, we welcome you however you're here. But those of you that are here on this foggy uh, Sunday fall morning, welcome. Glad you're here. So thankful. So, uh, I want to uh, I want to tell you a couple of things. Uh, as I love being a pastor, been a pastor for a long, long time, and sometimes being a pastor uh, involves your training and sometimes uh, your intuition. And uh, there are things you do as a pastor that are not happy occasions. You are sometimes called to go visit people who are at the point of death. And then sometimes you're called to go visit people, family members who have lost a loved one. And those can be difficult uh, situations. But sometimes interesting things happen in the midst of those ministry opportunities that do stretch one's training and even one's intuitiveness. I'll give you an example. Uh, long ago, I visited a, a, a widow woman whose husband had died. And I loved her. Love the husband. But I must tell you, the husband was a man, how can I say it? A man with whom it, it, it was not easy to live. Everybody knew that. She knew it. Uh, he was just a challenge. He, he was prone to speak his opinion uh, regularly and sometimes negatively. But I loved him anyway. He was, a, he was a nice guy to me most of the time. But anyway, that's just the way he was. Well, he passed away, and I went to visit his sweet widow, and she was sweet. So we were talking about the funeral and scripture that she might want used or songs that she might want sung. She very quickly pointed out a hymn that she loved, but said the husband did not, he said specifically, do not have that in my funeral. It's overdone. I don't want it in my funeral. I said, okay. We kept talking, and a little bit, she brought up that hymn. You know, uh, what do you think about such and such a hymn? And I said, you mean the one he said that he definitely did not want at his funeral? I said, she said, yeah. So here's my training. It got my intuitiveness. I'm not the smartest cookie in the package, but I'm probably not the worst. But I finally picked up on it, and I said, now, honey, you telling me you want that song sung at your husband's funeral? She said, Yes. I said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you get. So I'll never forget. I went back and told the music guy, here's what we're going to do, sing this song. And so he's up leading that song, you know, back then when Minister of Music used to do this. But anyway, he was up there leading that hymn. And I looked down at her, and she winked at me <laughs> right in the middle of the funeral. Well, I didn't know how, I didn't know what to do. I just... Wave back at her, I guess. You know, you, they don't train you for things like that. They don't train you. That was, I guess, her way of getting back at him. I don't know. I'll show you who gets the last word in here. And she did. And then there was another one. This didn't happen to me, but it happened to another pastor. He went to visit a sweet little old lady. They never say that about men, guys. But sweet little old lady. And 
this lady had been told some terrible news that she was fixing to die, as we say <laughs> down south. She was about to die. It was about, uh, said she had six months, she'd be gone. He went to visit her. She was just as upbeat as she could be. And she said, listen, Pastor, you know me. I, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go be with my Lord, my family that have preceded me. I'm ready. It's not a problem. He said, well, I'm glad you have that attitude. And she really did. And then she said, but now there's one thing I want you to make sure of as my pastor. He said, what? Name it. She said, when I get buried, I want you to make sure they put my old Bible in one hand and a fork in the other one. He said, what? She said, a Bible in one hand and my fork in the, a fork in the other one. He said, may I ask why? But sure, I'll make sure they do that. Sure enough, when she was laid out, Bible and a fork. She said, well, you know, Pastor, I've been a Baptist my whole life. And I've gone to thousands of church suppers and dinners. He said, yeah, we've had some good ones. She said, oh, there's good ones. But she said, the best ones are those where they say, hold on to your fork. She said, because I know it's not going to be jello coming for dessert. It's going to be something good like cherry pie or chocolate cake. She said, so I love it when they say, hold on to your fork. Because, Pastor, what that means is the best is yet to come. Well, I want them to know when I'm laying there that the best is yet to come. I like that, don't you? Our scripture text for today tells us that Jesus was getting ready to die. But he knew the best was yet to come. The best was yet to come. Because Jesus had already told us in John 17 and in John, the first part of 18, that he was going to receive the glory of the Father and that he was going to share that glory with us. He knew the best was yet to come. But, but, before he would receive the glory, he would go through valleys of disappointment, of despair, of even denial. All this was coming his way in the next few hours. As we've already seen in the first part of John 18, he went through that garden experience. We will reference it again, of course. But we saw in John 18, the first verses, there were three symbols there. The sword that represented the Roman soldiers who came to take him represents rebellion and the sword that Peter drew represents rebellion against the will of God. We saw the kiss, not in John, but I mentioned that it's in all the other synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke Gospels, but it occurred in the garden that we read about in John 18, symbolizing treachery, and then the garden where Jesus got on his knees and prayed. The Bible says in another place that he sweat drops of blood. It manifest and symbolized obedience. We've seen this powerfully presented, but he was fixing to go through yet other terrible things. So as we read the scripture for today, John 18, beginning with verse 11, going through verse 27, we will see yet two more of these symbols. So let's go ahead and look at this text. Then I'm going to show you some pictures. Uh, that I hope will connect you with the text. But John 18, beginning with verse 11. 
At that, uh, Jesus said to Peter, Sheathe your sword, for am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Look at that again. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Now verse 12. Then the company of soldiers, the commander and the Jewish temple police, arrested Jesus, tied him up. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews, that it was advantageous that one man should die for the people. Then verse 15. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, and who do you think that other disciple might have been? John. Most people believe it was John who would use a rather amorphous description, but it was most likely John. Well, that other disciple was an acquaintance high priest, so he went in with Jesus. But Peter remained standing outside. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was by the, with the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl, verse 17, who was with the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Hold up your finger. Number one. Now the slaves in the temple piece had made, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves. And Peter was standing with them warming himself. The, chief, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and all about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the temple and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, verse 23, give evidence about the wrong, and I'll, but if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing, warming himself by the fire. They said to him, aren't you? You aren't one of his disciples, are you? He had denied it the second time and said, I am not one of the chief high priest's slaves. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off said, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Then Peter denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Well, we've seen Jesus come out of the garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to show you some pictures, please. Go ahead and put the first picture up. I mentioned this, I referenced this last week. Leave it there just a second. Uh, this is just an old tree in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would have kneeled and prayed. That's one of the eight to ten trees still left in the garden that are over 2,000 years of age. One of the oldest living trees on the face of the earth. That means that tree witnessed Jesus kneeling and praying in the garden of Gethsemane. It was there when Jesus was there. Pretty cool, right? But there he prayed. 
And then they took him. Next picture, please. They took him up these steps. These go down to what is called the Kidron Valley. The garden is just on the other side. And up these steps, they would have taken Jesus bound, tied up. We would say today, handcuffed, to go before the religious leaders. You say, well, what about Pilate? That comes later. He was first taken to the religious leaders to be tried. We'll talk about that. Then to the actual Roman authorities. And then a third picture is not a good one. But it's not good because I'm in it. Yeah. But it's not good because you can't really see. But you see the walls behind it? That is a cistern. Anybody know what a cistern is? Not brother and cistern. But it's a place where they would keep water. And by the way, in the garden where the tomb is, they found cisterns that would hold millions of gallons of water. They would use it to water the garden in the dry times of the year. Well, underneath Caiaphas' house was this cistern. And by the way, that's where they made Jesus spend the night before being taken to Pilate. And so I take groups down into the cistern. That's me with Pastor Doug Mize. And we're reading scripture where Jesus actually stood. You can't hardly see, but on the left-hand side is one of our Jewish guides. And I remember his son, not him, but his son one time began weeping and said, we treated him terrible, didn't we? Oh, yes, we did. We did. But I just wanted you to see those. Because it was in the garden and in Caiaphas' house that these events take place. Well, first of all, see with me that there was the cup. This cup that Jesus refers to is the cup of submission. You see, as we've already seen, Peter had a sword, but the Lord had a cup. Now that's a symbol. It's a symbol of submission. Because Peter was resisting God's will, but Jesus was accepting God's will. Look again at another scripture. It will be on the screen. Matthew chapter 26. Let's go ahead and put that one up there. Matthew chapter 26 says exactly what we've already read in John. Is it up there? John, there we go. Going a little further, he fell face down. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Leave that up just a moment. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He prayed this several times. As a human being, he's praying, oh God, is there any other way? Because you see what Jesus was about to go through. He would experience suffering, yes. Horrible physical suffering. But many people, men and women, were crucified. But the suffering he would experience was that this holy, blameless, sinless Son of God would be made sin. The Bible says he would be made sin for us. Lord, is there any other way? Because if I bear the weight of every sin of every man, woman, boy and girl, past, present and future, oh God, that's such a weight. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But God answered his prayer and said what? No. And aren't you grateful? God said, no. Because of that, you have the privilege to stand before God in heaven and say, I stand before you in the righteousness of Christ. Whew. He knew 
that it would involve suffering, but he also knew that it would involve separation. For in that time when he became sin, the father turned his back on him. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the cup was submission. But you see, Jesus did not fear that cup because it was handed to him from the Father's hand. Now listen to me. It's a good lesson for all of us. Because you see, we should never fear the cups that the Father gives us. Because when the Father gives us trials and tribulations to go through, it is for our good. We grow through it. It's hard. But we know Jesus experienced it also. And we know that that pain and that heartbreak eventually transforms, as we've already seen, into glory. So never fear the cup from the Father's hand. Never fear it, because He will transform it into glory. Aren't you glad for that? Oh, I am. Thank you, Lord, for transforming our difficulties into glory. Lord, thank you that Jesus did it for us and showed us the way. Thank you, Lord. Well, our Lord Jesus was bound. They bound him and took him up those steps that I showed you just a while ago and took him to the house of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, who is Annas? Annas had been the chief priest. And according to Scripture, the chief priest was supposed to be the chief priest until he died, kind of like a Supreme Court justice. But it had become corrupted, and the Romans had kicked him out. He was still in charge, I promise you. Annas was still the power behind the throne. And now the high priest position was given. It was a political football now. It was given to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so the headquarters where Annas and Caiaphas held forth court, there is in that place I showed you where the cistern is. But Jesus deliberately gave himself to them, bound to be taken and tried by these men. Now they take him and they begin to question him. You see that, you see that in verses 20 through 22. They begin to question him. They're looking for some kind of evidence that they can turn over to the Romans and say, you need to kill this man because he is guilty of these crimes. So they begin to question him. Now, by the way, scholars will tell you that Annas and Caiaphas, because of the fact that they were the chief priests, they were in charge of the temple. And money that was made from the temple, a cut of it might come to the chief priest. And so when Jesus goes in and clears the temple of the money changers and the animal merchants, that cut into their business, didn't it? Don't mess with a man's money. So they got to find a way to get rid of this man, Jesus. So they begin to question him. Has he committed a crime that is so subversive that it should merit execution? Are his disciples a part of his violent group? Well, one of them did pull a knife, didn't he? That Peter guy, he pulled a knife. So maybe they're all a bunch of insurrectionists. We've got to find a charge to lay against him that the Romans will see as legitimate so that he might be executed. They question him even about his disciples. Look at verse 19. 
But Jesus does not respond about his disciples. He says, listen, everything I've done, I have done. The buck stops here. And everything I've done, I did publicly. If you want to know, go ask all the Jews to whom I spoke. But he's protecting his disciples. So while Jesus is inside the courtyard protecting his disciples, what's Peter doing outside? Denying him. So we see the cup of submission as Jesus willingly submits himself to the violence of these leaders. But then, sadly, we look at also another symbol, the fire, the fire of, of denial. Well, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him. He had already told him that, both in Matthew and also earlier in the book of John. Peter followed his crowd, this crowd to where Jesus was taken. And some people say, well, you've got to admire Peter's courage and his love for Jesus, but you cannot agree with his actions. So what happens here is Peter follows the crowd, and there's another disciple with them also, probably John, who goes up to this place. First he's outside, then he gets taken inside, but in the courtyard there's the fire. But you can see Peter just gradually moving closer and closer into a place of temptation where he's questioned, not once, not twice, but thrice. First the slave girl, verse 17, who's the doorkeeper, says, wait a minute, aren't you one of these disciples? By the way, the Greek there shows that she was anticipating a negative response. No. And he responds, no, not me. Nope, I'm not one of them. Well, he remains by the fire, doesn't he? So it's no wonder that he's going to be questioned again. Another servant girl asks him. And then the third time, a slave, a, a, friend, or excuse me, a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear was decapitated by Peter, he... Ask him, aren't you one of those men? And Peter denies it again, verse 27. Another scripture, another gospel tells us that Peter began to curse. Now it's not that he uttered forth a bunch of expletives. It's probably that he put himself under a curse and said, if I'm one of them, may I be cursed. Either way, he is denying that he ever knew Jesus. What a horrible thing. He's warming himself by the fire. They see him. We know in another text they hear his Galilean accent. Aren't you one of them? No, no, no. And we see denial. We see terrible denial. And the crowing of the rooster reminded Peter of the Lord's words. Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. We can't help but shake our heads and say, how could he do that? This man had lived with Jesus for over three years. How could he do this? How could he deny Jesus? Why didn't he stand up and say, yes, I'm proud of it? How many times have we denied Jesus through our actions, through our lack of witness, 
through our lack of love? How many times have we also denied that he was our Savior by the way we acted? Even though we may not have done what Peter did exactly, we've done the same, if not worse. One writer said, you know, it's interesting to compare what happened to Judas and what happened to Peter. Peter wept over his sins and repented. But Judas wept and admitted but never really repented. That's the contrast between godly sorrow and the contrast between a sorrow that leads to genuine, true repentance. This is going to say, well, what happened? Some of you are new to the faith and you don't, uh, you probably didn't pick up on Kevin's joke earlier. There is no eighth chapter of the book of Philippians. Uh, that's what he was teasing about. But some of you are new to the faith. And let me just tell you this. I hope you'll come back to our church and stay with us as we get to John 21. Because there you're going to see what happened to Peter. Peter gives, God give, Jesus gives Peter not one, not two, but three chances to express his love for him once again. And oh, by the way, the rest of the story, Peter became one of the great leaders of the church at Jerusalem. So here was a man that failed miserably, but God picked him back up. He said, I'm not done with you, son. And God's not done with us either, is he? So in the garden and the ensuing events that we've studied, they reveal guilt from Peter and Judas, the crowd, but we also see God's grace manifest, don't we? Jesus, fully conscious that Judas had betrayed him, fully aware of Peter's betrayal. In fact, in another gospel account, there was some kind of window, and the third time Peter denied him, Jesus looked at him, caught his eye. And the Bible says he went away and wept bitterly. Don't you know he did? For he disappointed the one who was inside protecting him. So it's a story of guilt, but it's a story of grace. We need to ask ourselves the question this morning. Will I accept the cup of submission to the will of God like Jesus did? Will I accept the cup of submission? Am I not to drink the cup, verse 11, that the Father has given to me? The answer was yes. And aren't we grateful he did? Let us too say, Father, whatever your will is, I'm going to drink that cup and do what you ask me to do and follow you and deny you no more. Pray with me, please. Father, in Jesus' name, we come and we submit our lives to you this morning, thanking you for your precious word, thanking you that you give us another chance like you did Peter. Oh God, we come to you right now. We ask that you would minister to our hearts, draw us ever, ever, ever closer to you, that we might follow you fully and accept the cup of submission. Father, May we be guilty of the fire of denial no more, but drink that cup willingly and lovingly. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're